Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Coming up on the Money Bee podcast, we discuss the ramifications of Italy's no vote on the constitutional referendum there and small stocks. Are they getting ahead of themselves? This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello and welcome to the Money Beat podcast. I'm Steve Grosser. Over the weekend, populism claimed another victory. Italian voters came out in, in a large degree and voted against um, a constitutional referendum. To break it down, we have Sarah Krause, Chris Dietrich in the studio, and joining us from London, who's been paying, I think, probably pretty close attention to this, is our columnist, James McIntosh. How are you doing, James? Hey. Thanks. Um, good. Here. How, what's, the, what's sort of the take in Europe to the, the vote in Italy? The markets seem to have largely shrugged them off, but in your column, you, have, you suggest that it... There's more to it than that, and this has a more uh, significance than the market's current reaction. Yeah, so the, I mean, the market's initial reaction was quite interesting, that it started with a broad panic, um, followed by some calm, then another little panic, and then basically the markets have concluded that, hey, what goes on in Italy stays in Italy. Um, on the other hand, if you look within Italy, the markets have not been calm at all. It's been pretty grim, um, yeah. especially if you're a bank. Um, they're, uh, they're in terrible shape. Um, you've got uh, the, the smaller banks, the Popolari's down, um, well, one of them's down 8% um, uh, after the referendum result. But I, I would take issue with one thing you said, which okay. was that this is a populist a populist revolt. It's very easy to sort of dump this in with uh, Brexit, with um, the the very high but failed attempt by uh, 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 the, the heir to a neo-fascist party to get elected as Austrian president. Um, of course, that, that didn't happen on the weekend, but came very close, um, or with Trump. Um, but it's not obvious that it's all about populism in Italy. It's It's more that it's uh, basically, this was a this was a bad this was a referendum on a bad constitutional change, which a bunch of the prime minister's own party came out against. Um, so, uh, it is true that the the populist movement was strongly against it, the Five Star Movement, but then so were lots of other people. So, it isn't it isn't sort of cut and dried that this is the same populist revolt that has everyone else. Uh, that has uh, sort of everyone else um, uh, worried around the world, although there is clearly an element of that. So that, wouldn't you say, though, that it does embolden the five-star movement to a degree? Oh, yeah, clearly. I mean, but, the, but, it, but in a sense, the five-star movement, of course, is, you know, this isn't new. This is a few years old now, mm. um, and they're still not likely to win an election. Um, but, you know, if this was only the five-star movement that was opposed to it, they would have lost. I mean, they don't command a majority in the country. Mm. So the other thing that I thought was interesting that Grosser said, um, you know, the or your response was that it seems to be isolated to Italy's market at this point. But I think the uh, important point to keep in mind is that Italy is part of the Eurozone, uh, the third largest economy therein. And, and so it's, this is not a country that can devalue its own currency. It's not one that can bail out its own banks. I mean, this is a broader what, what happens in Italy doesn't necessarily just stay in Italy. The, the initial assumption was, oh, my God, this is a catastrophe. Uh, we're going to be back to 
I don't know if you remember the, the, the dire days of 2012, but, you know, back to everyone talking about euro breakup and, you know, hey, parity with the dollars on the way again. Um, and the euro fell quite sharply initially on, on precisely those sorts of worries that if, if Italy's banking system implodes, then that'll have big repercussions across the whole eurozone. Uh, but now people are saying, well, actually, it kind of doesn't matter. Uh, the markets have concluded that, you know, there, there won't be big knock-on effects from the implosion of Italy's banks, uh, not least because it's not all of their banks. Um, uh, it's only uh, sort of three of the small ones, really, that are, that are under serious threat. Um, and uh, the rest of it, it's bad for shareholders in the banks, but it doesn't necessarily mean big systemic knock-on effects. Right? Doesn't mean it doesn't mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the way that people initially thought. How much of this, you know, the market reaction that we see today, and whether you want to ideologically pin Brexit and the and the you know U.S. presidential election, I mean, one one other big difference here is that the polls had indicated that no was going to win, so that the surprise element here seems to be, you know, another differentiator between what we saw yesterday and and, the, and maybe the market reaction that we're seeing. Although you did note that there was sort of the initial, you know, bit of panic in the market. I mean, how much of this is quote unquote priced in? Yeah, I mean, quite quite a lot of the people were braced for this to be to be bad. I mean, it, you know, the polls, it, the result was actually much worse in the sense for for the prime minister. Um, uh, it was even more strongly against what he was campaigning for uh, than had been expected. But the polls had been fairly clear that this this referendum was going to fail um, for quite a while now, and there had been a big rise in uh, Italian bond yields big rise in the spread over German bond yields, of course, which is a measure of the, the riskiness of Italy within the Eurozone, um, and, a, and a very big sell-off in Italian banks relative to uh, the rest of Europe. So it was pretty, you know, it was uh, it, it was already pretty heavily priced in. I mean, to what extent it's precise is very hard to know. Um, I mean, the fact that, as I say, a couple of the banks down uh, from 7 to 8% um, suggests for them at least it wasn't priced in. And also getting back uh, sort of to your point earlier, I mean, 57, I think it was 57 to 61 percent of Italians did vote against this constitutional referendum, which is pretty overwhelming, especially given what we've seen in, you know, other elections um, across the uh, you know, globe where it's been a much tighter kind of a vote. One of the questions I have, though, is a lot of the talk you know, here and, you know, I think among investors who are focusing on this is what this means for the euro. And yeah, and I think that's where people were sort of putting it in, you know, light of populism. What is your feeling about what this means for the survival of the eurozone? Well, there's two big threats here. Um, the first is the banking system. So, uh, one of wait, the world's oldest bank, in fact, Monte di Paschi, is uh, in the process of raise, trying to raise five billion euros of new capital, and that now looks extremely hard. Um, it, it hasn't been formally abandoned yet, but you know, one thinks it, it may well not go through, um, and that uh, you know, if as a result they're going to be short of capital, which will be. Um, they're being overwhelmed by bad debts, so you face the, the problem of either they get bailed out or they fail um, and get put into, uh, well, the first test of the European resolution mechanism for banks. 
um, which will be, you know, tricky and worrying for markets because of the risk of knock-on effects. Now, it's small enough that, you know, hopefully it won't be systemic, but there are other big banks coming along the line trying to raise capital which are systemic, notably Unicredit, um, which is due to raise a ton of money in January, February time. So if they don't manage to raise the money, people might start to say, actually, this is a serious problem that could have knock-on effects across the European financing, uh, across the European banking sector. Um, and that is very, very bad news for the euro, because um, this is uh, the, the banks and the governments are very closely intertwined. So that's the, the sort of short-term immediate threat to the euro. The bigger political threat is the five-star movement. Um, so these are the guys led by Beppe Grillo, who's a, um, a comedian, um, which is, uh, you know, funny. We laugh at politicians sometimes and say that they must be joking, but he actually is. Um, he's soared, you know, he's soared in the polls. He's led a, a very successful campaign here against the referendum. And if he... If he were to become, well, it wouldn't actually be him, but if the movement were to become, uh, uh, take control of the government, then you would have a, uh, or at least they say they would have, a referendum on whether to stay in the euro. And that would be very, very bad news because, I mean, the, the smartest minds out there have tried to come up with ways to break up the euro without causing chaos, and no one's come up with one right. yet. So that, if that was to happen, that would be very bad news. Um, but at the moment, uh, it doesn't look like there'll be... Uh, I mean, you know, there might be an election next year as a result, but there certainly won't be an election soon because of this referendum results. Uh, even with the Prime Minister having resigned, you've got to have an interim... You've got to have some sort of interim government. Um, and in principle, the interim government could stay there till 2018. This wouldn't be at all unusual for... Uh, for Italy to have uh, people who aren't elected in power. And Matteo Renzi himself, the Prime Minister who just quit, uh, wasn't actually leading the party when it when it won the last right. election. So these are these these sorts of things happen in Italian politics, and <laughs> international investors are you know wise enough to it that they're willing to shrug and say, well, you know. Happens True, though, there it is yet another upcoming election. I mean, we have Germany, France, Netherlands. I mean, it, it sort of adds another one to the list right. to wait for. I mean, what, what's also sort of, I, I think, interesting is, and, and getting back to your point, I mean, I think there's a large, it's like 70 or above percent of Italians still want to remain in the euro. And so I guess the question is, where does sort of the Populism that we've seen, sort of in you know, with Brexit and Trump here in the United States, where does that sort of stand in Europe, especially with France and Germany, which are also crucial elections coming up next year? Well, it is. I mean, it's interesting to note, and it's easy to make the case, and James indeed did, right, that if if the Italy referendum was about much more than populism, and we also had, you know, the uh, a defeat in Austria over the weekend. I mean, it was actually sort of a a draw, if not, you know advantage against populism over the past weekend, although these are sort of appetizers, as you alluded to, to the big, you know, the bigger votes later this year. But, you know, interesting kind of a, if you're going to tally it, if you're going to score it, wasn't, it certainly wasn't a, a major step forward for the for the populace this weekend. I think one thing that's important to do here is to point out that populism takes different forms right. in each country. So uh, the, the Five Star Movement is very different to the National Front in France. Uh, which in turn is very different to the um, uh, to the AFD in Germany. So, and and both are quite you know all of them are quite different to what Trump uh, has has said. 
uh, he'll do. So, you know, they're all populist, but they're all quite different. And that's, you know, you've got to look at each country separately. You can't just lump it all together. Um, the, some of the underlying drivers might be the same. So um, there's a, there was quite a close link between the level of youth unemployment, for example, in Italy and how a region voted. So the higher the youth unemployment, the more likely it was to vote against the referendum. Um, now, that's slightly odd, given that the referendum, in principle, was about a constitutional change, uh, not about anything that would affect youth unemployment. So, uh, you know, this, this, there is clearly an element of, you know, the, the common element across Europe of, you know, general upset about the fact that the economy has been so totally rubbish. Um, and Italy has far and away the, the worst um, uh, major economy um, worst, worst, worst economy in the G7 over the last 20 years uh, barely grown um, so quite extraordinary uh, quite extraordinarily bad situation for Italy but you know these, these things are different to, to what's going on in Germany where it's strongly anti-immigrant or in France where it's strongly anti-Islam so there's, there's, there's just different drivers in different countries or, or that underlying driver that you might see appears in different ways in each country. Um, I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you very much, James. Uh, we'll be right back after this. This message is brought to you by Nuveen. Nuveen has provided investment excellence for 125 years. A lot has changed, but one thing that remains constant, including the different types of durable income in portfolios, can help investors meet their goals. With expertise across income and alternatives, Nuveen continues to expand its capabilities while maintaining its legacy as a leading investment manager. Visit Nuveen.com to learn more. Investing involves risk. Loss of principal is possible. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome back to the Money Beat podcast. Paul is off. Um, for more podcasts, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcast. And become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. And now look for us on the Google Play Music app on your Android devices. Um, we're back from break, and, and we're going to switch it up. We're going to talk a little bit about small stocks. And we have Jason Zweig, uh, WSJ columnist, joining us. Um, Interesting. Since the election, we've seen small stocks um, have a bit of a run. They seem to be ground zero for the sort of Trump rally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, I think it was like, what, they got to 15 straight days? 15 in a row, uh, yeah. Up over 10%. They paused last week, as did, you know, m- much of uh, the rally. But, Jason, you and your column make the point that they still, there might be, there's still a case despite this run-up uh, for investing in small stocks. Yeah, it, there is still a case, Steve. It's a little um, it's a little weak, but if there's a case. <laughs> um, you know, I don't think this is a time when you, like, take your shoe off and, you know, hammer it on the table and jump up and down screaming small stocks are incredibly cheap. Uh, I think the best way to think about it is they're a little bit less overpriced than the rest of the market, even after the run-up, which obviously is continuing so far early this week. The small stocks are outperforming by, uh, I think, a full percentage point today again. So, 
And, I mean, what – Chris, you've actually – I'll turn this to you. You've written quite a bit, I think, <laughs> during that 15-day rally as to why small stocks are – you know, investors are you know, sort of rushing into them. Yeah, it would seem that, at least in the immediate aftermath, that the sort of knee-jerk reaction with small caps is they touch you know, many of the bases um, that are projected in this new Trump administration. Like, um, for instance, if there are tax cuts, corporate tax cuts, smaller companies ha- have you know, tend to pay a little bit higher. They do less business abroad. So if there are you know, tax reform that comes through, these small caps would tend to benefit a little bit more. If any of the sort of anti-trade rhetoric sort of comes to the fore, then it, there again, small caps would benefit. They do more um, business at home. If you sort of crack open an index like the Russell 2000, a lot of financials in there. Maybe it's maybe like a fifth financial, you know, like a lot of local bank stocks. There again, um, you know, sort of recipients of the enthusiasm of the post-Trump less regulation world. So there's, there's sort of a lot of different elements um, that seem to have aligned to, to really drive the enthusiasm. And they don't get impacted by, like, the stronger dollar, which has been another, as right, well. Another key factor there. Mm-hmm. But, like, where the, where do the valuations sort of sit right now? Um, they, they seem to be near highs, but not overly. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a fair way of putting it. I mean, small stocks are uh, more expensive than their historical average but relative to large stocks they're you could argue they're closer to fairly valued i mean there's historically there's always been a spread small stocks tend to trade at slightly lower um valuations than large just because they're riskier and less stable they're more prone to all kinds of geopolitical changes which is one reason they've been so volatile, as Chris was just saying, since the election. Uh, And historically, they're a little bit, tiny bit cheaper relative to large stocks than they have tended to be in the past. But, you know, you can't say they're an absolute bargain. They're sort of relatively attractive. What do you, Jason, I was interested in your column when you mentioned the, the, the tremendously strong flows into funds that, mm-hmm. that have these small caps. I mean, what, what are the key takeaways whenever you see this, you know, this big influx of money in a very short period of time? I mean, is that, that typically can be a worry, worrisome sign? Or, I mean, how do you mm-hmm. sort of – what are the big takeaways well, from sudden flows? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question, Chris. Uh, you know, the, the important thing for long-term investors to bear in mind – Whenever you get this strong a market consensus forming, and it's really strong right now. I mean, all the arguments you just laid out for, uh, laid out, Chris, for why small caps seem likely to perform well under a Trump administration are totally obvious. Because they're obvious, they're a consensus view. Because they're obvious and consensus, they're in the price. So we're going to need some kind of positive surprise from here for small caps to do better than people are already expecting. And the the flows have already sort of followed the enthusiasm. So money has moved into the sector, um, which is another reason why if you're optimistic, you should be sort of guardedly optimistic and you should take a really long-term view because in the short term, all of these things, in my mind at least, add up to a recipe for much higher volatility. 
one of the one of the things that I think also points to, or is just historically abnormal, but points to maybe a you know a little bit of concern or why you should be worried, is the fact that typically small stocks are what leads the rally early and doesn't they don't come into some you know a bull market that is right. what going on almost eight years now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why is that happening, and is it should we be concerned by that? Well, I think the reason it's happening is because a lot of investors have determined that the economic recovery is now going to go into a new phase, or if you like, it's almost like a a, a, a new economic recovery on top of the long, protracted, but very slow recovery we've had since 2009. And you know that's a that's a plausible bet but it is a bit of a gamble i mean historically on average small stocks don't do better than large late in an economic cycle they tend to do worse so if that's your bet you need to recognize you're taking a bet yeah and you know like you said it's it's almost this gambit that there will be no recession and we're just going to sort of jump start straight into the you know morning in america everything's everything's now just going to be 4% gdp i mean in a way that is what the price action has has shown it's for those that sort of look short term too it's interesting to note that if you read the you know stock traders almanac december is the best month typically for small caps so there's a lot of these sort of you know late cycle long term trends that jason mentioned combined with Obviously, the short-term, you know, post-election combined with the seasonality too. So it'll be really interesting mm-hmm. to see come January whether whether or not you know this, or if not sooner, if whether or not any of this continues. But as you pointed out on Monday, big big day already yeah, for small exactly. Cap. And and it's also important to to remember, just echoing what Chris just said, that the January effect, which was you know do- first documented thirty or forty years ago, which has historically been a very robust phenomenon has for at least 10 or 15 years been the December effect. It has moved as more and more market participants have become aware of the tendency of smaller stocks to do better in January. It has migrated to December because everybody's trading ahead of what everybody else thinks everybody else will be trading on. So now it happens in December. Before we're through, it'll be in November, it'll be in November and October and September until it finally disappears. But as of now, a lot of it has taken place in December over the past few years, and we might be seeing some of that now, too. I mean, one of the questions, and I feel like oftentimes I'm a broken record in bringing this up, there is a ton of uncertainty around Trump's policies and what form they're also going to take, which is sort of key. I mean, and not only that, we tried a lot of things to get this economy jump-started and growing at, you know, 4%, and we've rarely seen that over, you know, seven years. I mean, is the, is the market setting itself up uh, just broadly, not just with small caps, to be disappointed if, you know, the fiscal stimulus doesn't, you know, arrive as we expected and the economy doesn't start growing at, like, 4%, which would be very high? Yeah, well, this, the best guide, Steve, always is the historical record. And... The U.S. economy has achieved 4% GDP growth from time to time. Um, it's rare. It really helps um, if you start a start or participate in a world war. Um, that's 
been shown to be to be a statistically significant cause of greater than four percent GDP I think growth? I can I think I can go with our current growth over one more. Yeah, I, I'm I'm. <laughs> I'm I'm good with mild growth if if the price of higher growth is is world war. It has happened. I mean, it happened uh, early in the Reagan administration. It it has happened at other times in in our economic history, but it is rare and it is hard to sustain. And it's also it's hard to come up with an example historically of four percent growth that has followed onto an economic expansion. None of that means it's impossible. But um, I would argue that it's it's unlikely, and as an investor, if you're predicating your decisions on the achievement of 4% sustained GDP growth, you are likely to be disappointed because the odds are we'll come up short of that. I'm actually – I mean, I've been sort of surprised at like the level – to which, you know, investors we've had on this show, strategists that we've had on this show, and, and it's not universal in any way, but really have been bullish on the prospects for the U.S. and these policies. I, you know, I, I think when I look at, you know, different individual sectors, th- there does seem to still weeks later be this projection of all sorts of hopes and fears. Look no further than shares of a company called Rexnor that makes uh, ball bearings this yeah. morning actually opened higher Although it tilted a little, you know, it's, it's, it's inching a little bit lower. But that's a company that Donald Trump named in, you know, by – he called it out specifically as, you know, maybe the next target for one that, you know, needs to – will be punished for moving jobs overseas. And that stock went higher. So, you know, we'll see. I think when actual policies are implemented, whether any of this is sustainable as well. There's a big – there's a, you know, quite a bit of um, euphoria pumped into everything that we've already talked about. Um, I think that's a, probably a good place to leave it. Um, thank you for joining us. This is Steve Grosser with Chris Dietrich and Jason Zweig. And earlier, James McIntosh and Sarah Krauss. Share our shows with your friends. Like us at Facebook.com slash WSJ Podcasts. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.